hello and welcome to the Tower Hill Church podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whenever or wherever you're listening from, we hope this podcast helps you grow in your faith and we hope that you share it with others so that they can grow in their faith too. This week, Pastor Jason is continuing a series on the story of the prodigal son. This story is sometimes called the lost son and it goes with two other stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin. But being lost may not mean what you think it means. Let's dig in and see just what the Bible means when it comes to being lost right now. We're in our second week of this series that we're calling Lost and Found in Our Prodigal God. I have a Sunday morning ritual. And uh, every Sunday morning since I've been an ordained pastor, so we're going on 13 years now, I get myself the strongest cup of coffee that the government will allow, and I prepare for the morning. And listen, this is part of my ritual. It's part of my ritual a lot of days, but on Sundays, I buy the coffee. I don't worry about making it. And I get, I get to the office, and this is sort of tricky, right? So I'm fumbling usually with a few things. I've got my backpack, I've got the coffee, and I've got the keys. And the way into my office, the first door is a like a code that I have to punch in, and then the next door is a key. I know, right? It's like super secure, can't get to the pastor. But usually I'm like, I'm holding stuff, it's awkward. Inevitably, one Sunday a year, I spill the coffee, which is sad on many levels. Like, you can cry for me, it's okay. It's always, it's just the worst. And, you know, either my clothes are ruined and I gotta figure that out quickly, or it spills like all over the floor or whatever. Because I get like a gallon of coffee, it's everywhere, splashed on the wall, you know, and I got to clean it up and it's a mess. And uh, actually, that's not even my worst, usually what happens, that's not even my worst coffee spill. I don't know, do you guys have coffee spill stories? I think my best, my all time favorite, well, favorite, but you know, the top, was I was returning from a wedding. My friend was getting married out in Oklahoma, this was years ago, and I, and I made the drive. And I wanted to leave early, so I stopped by a McDonald's or something, and I got a coffee. And I wanted to see, like, I wanted to gauge, like, what time I was leaving so I could gauge when I would need to stop for the day. So I get the coffee from McDonald's, and I go, <laughs> ba-bam, scalding hot, burning coffee in my lap. I'm the reason they have to stay on the cup. Contents are hot. Anyway. In thinking a little bit philosophically about this, about the coffee spill, it occurred to me that this is sort of like life. People knock into me, I fumble with things, and what occurs to me is the reason coffee spills out of the cup is because that's what the cup is filled with. In other words, I'm I'm not spilling out of my coffee cup, milk doesn't fall out, or tea or something. It's because it's coffee in the cup. And I was thinking, isn't this a little bit like life? Whatever's in our cup, when life runs into us, when we start fumbling things, is what spills out. Whatever is in my cup is what spills out. And I don't know, over the last two years, I haven't been proud of everything that's spilled out of my cup. Maybe you can relate. Sometimes I find what's spilling out of my cup is not the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's anger, 
frustration. Maybe it's um, fear. And then I start to notice that the stuff that's spilling out of my cup is the same thing that's spilling out of everyone's cup. And I think to myself, well, then why does it matter that I'm a Christian? If, that's what's, if I'm just spilling out what everybody else is spilling out, I've got a problem. Do you know that for most people who have rejected church, maybe you this morning, you at one time did, or you still do. And again, mom brought you here today. The main reason people reject church is not because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Here's what they reject the church about. Most people who reject church are convinced that church people don't believe what they say they believe. Because what spills out of us is no different than what they're seeing spilling out of everyone else. I think part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to figure out how do we make sure that what's in the cup is the right thing. Philippians uh, is a great source for what the cup should look like. Philippians chapter 2, this is Paul talking. He says, first, do everything. This is to you believers, followers. If you're an unbeliever in the room, you're off the hook for this one. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Dang. <laughs> Couldn't we just get like a puff Mother's Day sermon, Pastor? Couldn't... Did you have to make me feel like... I know. But I do think this is, it's important enough to talk about. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Everything. But it's not because God wants you to do it so that you are morally righteous. I mean, God cares about that. But that's not, in the end, why. Watch what he says. Watch what Paul says here. So that, purpose statement, right? So that, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. What an awesome image. That's why we're to do things without complaining and arguing. That's why we're supposed to live differently so that we will shine like stars in this darkened world that we are in. And I don't think I need to convince you that the world's a pretty dark place. And I don't think our 24-hour news cycle has helped us. <laughs> I think it's only brought to light maybe what's always been there. But I think the problem with the what's in the cup idea was summarized by a pastor that, uh, that I really look up to, and I, I was at a conference where he spoke, and he said this, that I thought captured it perfectly. He said, we Christians, we need to get our shine back. We need to get our shine back. But that's not something we do by like trying to, I guess, hit certain benchmarks ourselves. It's by allowing God to change our heart. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We need a recalibration. We need to care about God's heart over everything else. Like, I need to care. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I need to care about what God cares about more than what I care about everything else. Because that's what it means to follow. We don't need, we don't need any more Jesus admirers. We need more Jesus followers. Remember, Jesus said he wants to make disciples of all nations, not admirers of all nations. People are like, yes, good, I love that message. And they don't apply it to life. And by the way, I'm in this category too, just like you. We all are. We got to figure it out so that what spills out of us is the stuff that God cares about. And this is in Jesus' teaching. This is what Jesus is getting at as we're looking through Luke chapter 15 over the next couple of weeks. Jesus tries to explain the difference between God's heart and the human heart and why the religious people of Jesus' day had it all wrong, and perhaps maybe that's what we tend to get wrong today. He starts in chapter 15 by telling two parables We talked about this last week, so I'm going to go over some things quickly, and it's because I unpacked it verse by verse pretty much last week. So if you want to go back and hear some of the unpacking, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. But he tells two parables, one's of a lost sheep and one's of a lost coin, and both had the same point. So the lost sheep was, there's there's one lost sheep out of 100, he leaves the 99 who aren't lost behind to go chase down the one. With a coin, a woman finds it. She loses a coin of great value. She turns over the whole house looking for it. She finds it and she rejoices. And the lesson, the takeaway was uh, that heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. That this is what God cares about most. In other words, God is more concerned with rescuing sinners than dwelling on the fact that they sin. Does God care about sin? Yes. But God dwells or focuses on, okay, now how do we rescue? And then Jesus kind of ties it all together. He tells the parable of the prodigal son, as it's known, or the lost son. And I love this Rembrandt painting as it depicts the, both sons and the father in the story. The younger son on his knees and the elder son standing quite judgmentally on the side. And a resource that we're using over the next couple of weeks is one that I absolutely love, and you're going to hear some, some ideas and some research that came from this book into the sermon series. It's kind of bleeding through because I feel like I've just sort of incorporated some of this thinking into my thinking, and I don't know always when the actual quote is and when mine is. So <laughs> anyway, it's The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, which I just, I love, and we bought some more. I know last week we ran out quickly. We bought some more for you to take for free today as you leave. And just a reminder, like if you, you may be one of these people that has the gift of acquisition. Maybe don't acquire like five copies. I'm going to take it. Oh yeah, I got like four friends. I'm going to get, like, listen, just maybe go home, like buy on Amazon. They're not that expensive. We just want to make sure everybody's able, every family's able to get a book. So anyway, get one. They're uh, outside on your way out the doors. Please feel free to grab one. So let's go. I'm going to just hit hit the main points of the parable, and then we're going to dig a little deeper into one particular area. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The young one, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property 
between them, which, as we said last week, was basically like saying, Dad, let's pretend you're dead and give me my money now. And the most shocking thing about it was that the dad said, okay, and did it. This would have been very shocking for the people in Jesus' day to have heard that and to hear that the father actually did it instead of, like, tuning that kid up, right? Okay. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And just a reminder that, uh, I mean, you know how pigs are considered unclean in Jewish culture now, but you know, think about in Jesus' day that this, this kid had gotten so low, he was ready to eat pig food. He was that desperate. And we certainly are meant to see that desperation in how we have become lost in our lives or how we get lost from time to time, that we settle, instead of settling for what God wants to give us, we settle for pig food, and, uh, we, and it gets us to a desperate place. But the people who would have been listening to this, that Jesus was telling this story, they would have been ready to start applauding. Ha! That's what that kid gets. He's low, and he deserves every last bite of pig food. Now, he comes up with a plan, right? The younger son he comes up with a plan. Well, listen, I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask if, if my father would just hire me to do work. And as a hired hand, I don't live on the premises. I'm not part of the family. And I'm sure he was expecting rejection. Because in this case, Middle Eastern patriarch of Jesus' day probably would not have accepted that son to come back. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And we see this is the heart of God. And the beautiful message for all of us is, it doesn't matter how much you've squandered your inheritance. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. The father's heart is, he's going to come running when you come running back. He's going to meet you before you even get there. He loves you so much. All he cares about is you. No matter how badly you treated him, he just wants to have his child back, which is such a picture of grace, a grace that some of us even have a hard time accepting. Like, I don't deserve that exactly. But then we forget quite quickly, there's another part of this story. There's another character, the older brother. And you think about who uh, Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to tax, tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Younger brother, 
elder brother. He's got a message, a quite strong message, for what is spilling out of their cup. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, rejected the father, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, which is, that's one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This part of the story would have been extremely confusing. Maybe it's even confusing to us. Because apparently, not running away doesn't automatically mean that you're in a relationship with the Father. The message we get from Jesus' parable is weird. It's you can, you can be the good, kind of moral, conforming elder son, or you could be the immoral Younger son, and you could be equally lost. I think about, you know, people coming to church and been coming for years. And it sort of it sort of washes, it can just sort of wash over you, maybe. And you forget about it when you go out to live your life. And I always say, it's like sitting in church, it's good as long as it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's a step of a journey of faith. But sitting in the church doesn't make you a Christian. It's like I go home and I get in my camp chair and sit in my garage. I don't become a car. It's about something else. It's about something more. It's about a relationship. So I think, and this is a question that Tim Keller asked that I think is the right question. I think we need to ask, what do we mean by lost? Like, what exactly are we talking about? So what does it mean for these two groups, the younger son and the elder son, to be lost? Well, let's get into who Jesus is talking to. First, the tax collectors and sinners. What made them so bad? Sinners we sort of get. That sounds bad. Sinners is just referring to non-Jewish people. They were considered sinners because, you know, Roman culture, they're worshiping other gods, they don't follow the dietary and purity laws. You couldn't have table fellowship with them. They were considered sinners. But what about the tax collectors? What was their deal? Why were they so negatively looked upon? Here's why. If you, were, if you think taxes are bad now, we got nothing on the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They were taxed basically to breathe. They were taxed for everything all the time. So you had a few different things going on. The first was... Everybody in the Roman Empire paid a principal tax, like a census, based on the census poll and land. Everybody paid it. It's what kept the Roman Empire going. This would be a direct tax. But many indirect taxes were for the Jewish people that were contracted out to collectors. And this is who, mostly who Jesus is talking about. He could be talking about both uh, or one or the other, but usually it's to do with these other 
collectors who would tax things like on transporting goods from one town to another. They could tax you. And there were a lot of things that were rumored about about these tax collectors, like if they were having a bad month, they would take it out on you and tax you as much as they think they should. Because the way that it worked was they would pay an estimated tax for the region that was in their control, give that to the Roman Empire. Then they'd go back and tax the people more to make a profit, make their money back and then more. What hurt the worst was oftentimes they would hire Jewish people to collect the taxes against their own people. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as pawn scum. They were the lowest of the low to do this to your own people, to profit off this corrupt tax system. Then that's not even mentioning the religious taxes that they had to pay. Every time they went to a a feast in Jerusalem that they were required to go to, they had to pay the temple tax. They had taxes for the priests at the temple. So they were taxed all the time. If you lived in Galilee, Jewish collectors would often collect for Rome. If you lived in Judea, it was often Gentiles. But whether direct or indirect collectors, which by the way, Matthew The disciple was a tax collector. He was a direct tax collector, we know, because he had an office. So he wasn't out just charging people on a whim. He was a direct tax collector. But either way, that uh, they were considered immoral and were not to be trusted. Now, not all of them were wicked, like politicians. I mean, not all of them are wicked, right? 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They were considered to be immoral. You can't trust tax collectors. Now, on the flip side, you had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the Pharisees, they wanted to influence society to adhere to legal requirements of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but they had 613 commandments. How did they get that? It's sort of a long story, but through rabbinic interpretation from Moses on, they kept adding stuff. You okay back there? Is that a coffee spill story? We love you. We'll clean it up. It's all good. 613 commands. And the teachers of the law worked for the government, the Jewish government, the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who were seen to be the, the authoritative interpreters of the law. So who were the Pharisees and teachers of the law? They were the moral authority. And yet... You could be younger son immoral or elder son moral and be equally lost. Why? This is important. Why? You could be equally lost because being lost has to do with a relationship with the father. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was reframing their understanding of sin. I always like this illustration to talk about it because... Uh, if you view it this way, sin is sort of like if you had this clear pitcher of, of water. And if you add a couple drops of black ink, what happens? Well, the ink doesn't just suspend in little bubbles that you could like scoop out with a spoon later and take the sin out. And that's actually what adherence to the law is trying to accomplish. Well, if I live this morally perfect way, if I follow those 600 
and 13 commands, it's like I've taken the spoon and I've eliminated all the sin from the pitcher. But that's not how it works. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say, sin is much worse than you think, but God's grace is much deeper than you ever imagined. Because when you put those couple of drops in, it diffuses across the entire pitcher. The whole pitcher of water's ruined. So the problem isn't a particular behavior, it's your heart. No one is righteous. We are all equally lost. The law won't take the ink out of the water. The answer is you need new water. The living water of Jesus Christ. But the law is helpful, right? There's those 613 commands, the interpretation of the Ten Commandments, all of that. The Old Testament's important. Why? Because the law helps me know that the ink is in there. Otherwise, I might be led to believe this is just what the water's like. I don't know any better. This is how John Calvin understood it, said that the, the law is a great teacher, not a savior, but a teacher to help us understand what we need to do to get new water, and that is something that only God can deliver. We can't accomplish on our own. Let me, let me just kind of draw this out for you in a practical example between law and relationship. Let's say you come and ask me on this wonderful Mother's Day. By the way, isn't it May? <laughs> on this wonderful Mother's Day, Jason, do you love your wife? That's an easy, easy answer. The answer is yes. But what if I answered this way? Well, I didn't cheat on her. Wrong answer. Well, let me tell you that. Wrong answer. But I gave the answer that's in accordance with the law. I didn't break the law. I didn't cheat on her. Obeying the law isn't the same thing as a loving relationship. This is what Jesus is trying to explain. Both those sons, you know what they cared about? They cared about the father's things. They didn't care about the father. And that's the problem. We need to care about what God's heart over absolutely everything else. And then this is really the gem, the pearl of Tim Keller's book. It's helping us understand this important truth. That word prodigal doesn't mean wayward. It means recklessly extravagant. And yes, we could be recklessly extravagant in our own sin, but he turns it and he says, don't we serve a prodigal God? who is recklessly extravagant in his love, mercy, and forgiveness for us. Here's my prayer. Is that I could care about the Father's heart so much and allow him to change the water, to fill my cup, so that when life comes running into me, what spills out it's the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ. The love of the Father. The hope of new life in Him. Because whatever is in my cup is what spills out. And listen, our world could use some light. Guess who God wants to make that happen? All of us. We're on a mission together. And by God's grace, 
we will serve him well. Let's fill our cups. Amen.